0: Bible was copied and translated, and the stories told so many times that you can't trust any of it. There have been some changes since you left, uh, Bruce. I just Just wanted to let you know. (laughs) Well, maybe you've heard a remark like that before. Uh, You know, when you're talking to people about the Bible and about Jesus, and you bring up uh, what uh, what the Bible says about the resurrection or about Jesus' death, people say, people wave their hand and say something like that. You know, the Bible was copied and translated so many times, those stories repeated so often that you can't believe a word of it. But you know there's a great deal of confusion in a statement like that. And we, we need to unpack that a little bit. Um, because such a sweeping denial of the Bible has really confused a number of different problems that uh, confront us. They've confused three issues as though they were one, and each of these can be answered with evidence. One issue is textual transmission, and that's the copying of the manuscripts. Now, last night, one of my colleagues, Dr. Uh, Dan Wallace, was debating Uh, Bart Ehrman, who is a famous uh, former fundamentalist Christian, uh, on that subject. So uh, I haven't heard any reports about how it went, but I'm sure it went wonderfully um, for Dan Wallace. Uh, uh, But, uh, well, I'll try to update you on that later on. That's one of the issues. Another is translation. That is bringing an, an ancient text, an ancient language into another. And the third of those is tradition. Does the Bible accurately represent what happened? Now, I only want to deal with one of these issues this morning. Unless we want to go till about two, uh, we could. Uh, so, so let me just deal with the, the issue of history uh, or tradition. But let me just quickly deal with the other two, just just to kind of tie up those loose ends. On, in terms of the text, the New Testament is the best attested work in the ancient world. Scholars have more than, 40, uh, more than 5,700 uh, Greek manuscripts. I think the official number stands at 5,743, but who's counting? Containing all or part of the New Testament, and the earliest of those dates to 75 years from the originals. And even though there are differences between these manuscripts, there are painstaking methods to be followed in reconstructing the original. So what we have now is what they wrote then. And I spent a lot of time teaching people how to read New Testament Greek, uh, how to translate the ancient Greek of the New Testament so that they can study it in more depth. And the language of the Bible can and is well translated into English or any other target language without any significant distortion of the meaning. Thankfully, we have about 40 or more English versions to choose from when it comes to uh, uh, studying the Bible. The New Testament, then, does not suffer from corruption either in text or in translation. But what about the history? What about the form of the text as we have it now? Do they get it right? Or did they make up stories and legends about Jesus? You know, some people you meet in witnessing situations seem to operate under the assumption that the stories in the Gospels about Jesus are just like those fish stories. You know how the fish is this big when you tell it one time, and then it's this big, and then so on... And and so, you know, a lot of people operate, seem to operate under the assumption that these are stories that grew in size and grandeur and then suddenly Jesus is God before we've figured out really what happened. Um, That is certainly not the case. Uh, So, these days, popular legend has it that the New Testament was composed at such a distance to the events of Jesus' life that it cannot be trusted. And the more sinister of these myths uh, has it that the early church actually fabricated what is in the Gospels, Uh, fabricated the miracle stories and forged claims that Jesus is God. Now, to be sure... There was a period of time between Jesus' earthly life and the composition of the first New Testament documents, and it is true that as you read the New Testament Gospels, they show a great deal of diversity in their structure and the way they uh, they uh, bring the story to life. But they also show pervasive unity in their presentation of Jesus. Now, each one of these Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, selected and arranged events and teaching from Jesus' life as they composed their accounts of Jesus. Uh, The Gospel of John even tells us that John had to be selective about what events he decided to include. He says, even all the books in the world couldn't contain all the other stuff that I didn't write in my book. I guess in modern terms you could say there's not a DVD large enough to fit all of it. But distilling a story down to manageable length is a far cry from wholesale invention. In fact, I, I would tell you it's a leap of faith to believe that Christians falsified the accounts. You can trust the New Testament because it was written by people who lived and knew... Jesus. They lived when he did, they worked with him, they were in close contact with him over a number of years, and they knew exactly what happened in his life, death, and resurrection. And for our discussion this morning, I've selected two really important points from the text that we just read to emphasize, uh, for us to emphasize when when we meet people who just ignorantly wave their hand and dismiss the Bible as as uh, uh, historically unreliable. So, I'd like to arm you with two important points. Number one is that the earliest New Testament documents were written about 20 years from Jesus' earthly life. The earliest New Testament documents were written within about 20 years of Jesus' earthly life. And the second point I'm going to make is that the first Christians emphasized the importance of eyewitness testimony. The first Christians emphasized the importance of eyewitness testimony. And these two points together give us confidence we can trust the New Testament. So let me start with the earliest New Testament documents were written about 20 years within about 20 years of Jesus earthly life. In fact, let me let me expand that idea for just a moment at least 21 of the 27 books that we know as the New Testament were written within 35 years of Jesus. And all of the New Testament was written before the end of the first century. If you want to be precise, it's about 96 A.D. Uh, the last book of the, of the New Testament written was the, uh, the Revelation to John. And so here we are within... Uh, Within 70 years of Jesus' public ministry, earthly life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we have the entirety of the New Testament composed. Now imagine for a moment that you were alive in the years before the Civil War and that you traveled across the Atlantic and arrived on the continent of Europe and went to what is now southwestern Germany. It wasn't Germany at the time, but anyway, we call it Germany now. And you would perhaps have been able to meet a German scholar by the name of Ferdinand Christian Bauer. He died in 1860. I have a photograph of his uh, tombstone, actually. Uh, uh, And and the reason why, of course, is that... uh, the battery on the camera ran out before I could take the pictures of the other guys who were buried in that cemetery, who were uh, actually much, much more helpful to New Testament study, people like schleiermacher and others. But uh, Bauer was a, uh, was a top professor at the premier university in his day near the Black Forest, the city of Tubingen, and he trained scores of students and had influence on hundreds or perhaps thousands of others through his writing. Now, I'm bringing him up because anyone who studies the New Testament in any formal setting eventually comes across F.C. Bauer and his ideas. Bruce, you've had to deal with him. Dan, you're looking forward to dealing with him. And because he's the one who set the standard for all subsequent New Testament study, and unfortunately, he pushed a whole lot of error out into the scholarly world. And he... Among other things, he said, he came to the er erroneous conclusion that Paul had only written four of the letters that uh, Christians normally attribute to him. Now, do you know what four letters they were? I'm not going to put Bruce on the spot. He he may not remember what the help brief were. (laughs) He says, Thank you. Amen. Uh, Galatians, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Those are what uh, Bauer, Herr Professor Dr. Bauer called the Hauptbriefe. Okay, any of my German speakers out here, they're all on the same row, it looks like. Uh, <laughs> know what Hauptbriefe means. Uh, it means uh, <clears throat> chief letters or head letters. And it's Well, it's really not a translatable idea. Uh, people just call them Hauptbriefe. Even, even English speakers do. Now, even these days, uh, actually... Uh, there were people who studied the New Testament after him uh, and these days now, everyone would say, well, excuse me, Herr Professor Dr. Bauer, there are actually three others that belong in the list of Halpteripha. They are Philippians, Philemon, and First Thessalonians. Because okay, there's seven undisputed letters of Paul. Okay? You could sit down across the table from even the hardest of critics and say, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and they wouldn't bat an eye. Now isn't that great? Maybe you don't know the, the what the uh, what the wonderful opportunity you have in knowing that is, because now you've got a historical fact you can bank on. Look at this: no one, not even the most uh, severe critic, not even the hardened liberal, the uh, flaming atheist, will deny that Paul wrote First Corinthians. But wait, there's more. Do <laughs> you know when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians? You say, well, you know, history, uh, Yeah, I don't, I don't memorize dates. But the timing of Paul's writing of the letter to the Corinthians is important. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but you can read in Acts 18, you meet a few people there. You meet Priscilla and Achilla and Gallio, who is proconsul of Achaia, And those particular chronological details uh, put Paul in uh, Corinth and in Ephesus and other places at a particular moment in history. And we can look at the events uh, that are recorded there and we can see them outside of the New Testament as well. And this means that confidently, we can say confidently that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in about 54 A.D. Okay, well, you could just say 55 if you wanted to, or maybe 53, but uh, at any rate, you know, what's the difference of a couple of years when we're talking 2,000 years difference? So that's only 21 years from when Jesus was crucified. He was crucified in 33 A.D. Now, I won't even get into that. There's some, But there's two possible dates, 30 and 33 A.D. The better one's 33 just trust me on that one uh, I, I got to start somewhere now, just think for a moment uh, about uh, twenty one years ago second August nineteen ninety Saddam hussein 's Iraq invaded Kuwait. You remember that now some of us here are old enough to remember it, and we we knew what we were doing when 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 that happened. How about on the 3rd of October, East and West Germany officially reunited. You remember that? You remember when the wall came down? Yeah. Now, there are some details from 21 years ago that are really, really hard to believe, like a gallon of regular gas cost $1.16. <laughs> and this one's even more unbelievable. The U.S. national debt was only $3.2 trillion. Uh, it's more than $14 trillion today. Oh, well, anyway, uh, some details of life are harder to believe than others. But if you'd been alive in 1990 and you sat down to write a, uh, an account of, say, uh, Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, you'd, you'd have a pretty good chance of getting the details right, don't you think? I mean, if you had lived through them, that would be one line of evidence, but you could, you could talk to the witnesses, you could talk to the, the, to the commanders of the, of the forces on the ground and so on. I mean, you could, you know, most of those people who you would need to talk to, to to get it right are still alive, right? Well, that's what's important to notice as we move into this passage, that we're only 20 years from when Jesus was alive on earth. Now let's consider the passage here. Verse 1 and 2. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. The gospel is what Paul preached to them and they gladly received. And in verses 1 and 2, That gospel is the means by which people stand in a right relationship with God. If you stand rightly in a relationship with God, you are saved, he says in verses 1 and 2. Now, some people are troubled by the end of verse 2. We don't really need to be that troubled by it. It says, Unless you believed in vain. It's only troubling if you emphasize the wrong part of the clause. Some people make it sound as if, well, there's this kind of faith that, well, you know, you tr- just tried to believe but just didn't do it, uh, you know, or it, it wasn't a, a it wasn't a, a saving faith. It w- it was a head belief and not a heart belief or something like that. But here's what Paul means by "unless you believed in vain." Drop down to verse 19. We didn't read it as part of the passage, but verse 19 says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life, only we are of all men most to be pitied. What he says in verse 2 about believing in vain is talking about the object of faith. What he's saying is, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if there's no such thing as resurrection, then you're in a world of trouble because... There's no salvation. See, Paul's emphasizing that object of faith. And if the object of your faith cannot deliver, you have believed in vain. Now, now, verse three. Verse three is the most important thing about this morning. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, if I had some Greek students in the audience, I'd have them parse the verbs. I keep telling them to do that, and uh, for whatever reason, they they do it. (laughs) But uh, the verbs, I delivered and I received, are both in the aorist tense. You say, wow, aorist tense. Thank you, Jesus. I always thought I would be (laughs) edified by this message. The aorist tense means it's a past tense. Paul delivered the gospel at some point in the past to the Corinthian church. Remember, this is at least the second letter he's written to them. And he's had a a long history of dealings with them. So when he was there in Corinth, he preached this gospel to them that Jesus died and rose again and that in believing in Him, you'd have eternal life. And so he delivered that to them. But look at what it also says, "...which I also received." That's past tense as well. Now, think about it logically. You can't deliver what you don't have. So that means that Paul had to have gotten the information that he was delivering to the Corinthians at some time before 54 AD. He had to have gotten that information before that as well. See where I'm going with this? You see, the content is of key importance to what he's saying in this chapter to this audience. We'll get back to the importance of exactly what he's saying, but let's step back for the moment and consider the context. Already in the present, by this time, when Paul writes this epistle, the teaching that Jesus died for our sins and rose again was already firmly established. And it's firmly established in a document which no critic will deny goes back to Paul and goes back to the first century. That is critical. You remember the critics are saying that these traditions about Jesus took centuries to evolve? You know, oh, well, you know, the fish story got bigger and bigger. So the New Testament can't be trusted. And yet, here we have a document 20 years from Jesus in which a Christian is writing to other Christians and saying, everyone knows this tradition already. And so, the main doctrines of Christianity, here, Jesus' death for our sins, His burial, His his resurrection, all of it firmly established. And because the testimony in this passage is independent of the Gospels themselves, and it's so soon after Jesus, the historical credibility of this Christian teaching of Jesus' resurrection is unassailable. Do you know when the Gospels were written? They weren't written until after a lot of the epistles were written. Now, we could argue about uh, things like, did Mark write first, did Matthew write first? I'm not going to get into that. But uh, but for the most part, the consensus is that the first of the New Testament Gospels is Mark. All due respect to... Uh, to uh, Bruce, he thinks that uh, Matthew wrote first, and i 'm sure we 'll still be arguing with with one another about that as we 're waiting to go to the judgment seat. <laughs> of course, I, I like to joke as well that there's there 's this special line for people who want to know who wrote first and <laughs> and they have to wait a lot longer, you know. <laughs> But we could argue about that, but let's just say for the, uh, the consensus is about 50 A.D., give or take a few years. So Paul is writing something to the, Corinthians, uh, the Corinthian church before perhaps most of the Gospels were written. Perhaps uh, one or more of the Gospels is in the process of being written. And this means that this tradition about Jesus is independent of the Gospels. That is, Paul didn't get it from the Gospels. It's not like someone else told him, well, go read the Gospel of Mark. Well, what Gospel of Mark? What? He, you know, he left us on that missionary trip. I don't think he can write a Gospel. That's the sort of thing that Paul might have been saying around this time. And yet, here we have this... I mean, it's, it's just... It's, this is, so, this is so exciting to me that we have documentary evidence of the first century that, that people are already saying this about Jesus. It doesn't take hundreds of years before people are saying this about Jesus. So here's the content of that tradition about Jesus, the history about Jesus. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that on the third day he was raised according to the scriptures. So here is the heart of Christian belief, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and His bodily resurrection. Now this historical content is important to respond to denials on the part of the Corinthian church. There were some people at Corinth who had imbibed a bit more of the Greek culture surrounding them than they should have If you drop to verse 12 in this same passage it says Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See in the Corinthian world Some people claim that resurrection is impossible And this this same anti-supernatural claim is central to our own time as well These days, there's this highly uh, or widely held belief that if something can't be proved in a laboratory, it must not be true. The legend of our time is that the scientific method is the only one and only way to know what's true. And that mythology has invaded the way people do history as well. Because of an anti-supernatural way of thinking, the modern world's created this false intellectual wall between theology and history. And skeptics like F.C. Bauer would say, well, you can make theological claims about the resurrection, or uh, you can make historical claims about Jesus and who He is, but you can't put them together. In other words, if somebody makes a theological claim, say about resurrection or something like that, makes a claim that Jesus is God, automatically the modern world says, well, that's not history, it's theology. And you can't do both at the same time. But the very nature of Jesus Christ's coming to earth shows that God can and does invade history. As John says, the Word became flesh. The perfect pre-existent God-man came at a particular moment in history. Galatians says... When the fullness of time had come, it's the very culmination of God's plan. And so, in the passage before us, we encounter a historical event with theological ramifications. And to deny this is to deny what's truly Christian. Now, you and I don't need to fall in the same trap that the unsaved world has set for themselves. In fact, Paul invites historical scrutiny. And if you do history right, the truth wins. So this passage becomes a tool as we answer objections from our friends and family who think we've gone off the deep end because, well, you can do theology, but you can't do history at the same time. See, the content of discussion here in this passage is about the resurrection of Jesus. Some people at Corinth say, well, resurrection is impossible. The reply is, oh, but resurrection is not only possible, it happened. And if you don't believe it, you're not Christian. So the New Testament documents were written within a fairly short period of time after Jesus. And even before these documents appeared, Christians are saying that Jesus rose from the dead. But there's another point in this passage that makes the reliability of the resurrection message even more secure. It's the testimony to this truth. And that testimony comes in two forms. The first one here is the refrain, according to the scriptures. Did you see that? That emphasizes the fact that Jesus' death for our sins and His resurrection were part of God's eternal plan. That's His way of saying, God foretold in the scriptures that Jesus would come and do this. Now, the second strand here then is testimony from eyewitnesses which leads to our second point. The second point is the first Christians emphasized the importance of eyewitness testimony. Now, unlike popular belief about Christians, the earliest Christians did not uncritically accept reports or teachings. And Paul wouldn't expect his readers to do so either. When you think about what uh, Uh, John says in 1 John, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from... You see, uh, the Bible never asks us to uncritically accept something. And instead, Paul says, there were eyewitnesses to this event. Verse 5. This is still part of the traditional material that he's passing on, but look at what it says. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. These witnesses to the resurrection are an impressive array. Verse 5 matches what the gospel writers will later say about uh this account that Peter was one of the first people to whom Jesus appeared. And the twelve here are of course the twelve apostles, minus one. But even though Judas is no longer part of their group, they're still called the Twelve. Okay. Uh, it's like this you know, the group of people, I suppose it could still be first platoon or something like that. I mean, even if one of the guys is missing. But here's what's interesting about verse five as well. Did you notice that he uses the term, the name Cephas? Now, Cephas is an Aramaic name, and it means rock. and And Peter is a Greek name, and it means rock. <laughs> okay, you know what the you know what the Aramaic name for Peter is? Cephas. Okay, there it is. Uh, he doesn't use his, he doesn't use his Hebrew name, Shimon, or Simon as we. Often mispronounce it. Of course, Greeks had that same problem. You know, what's your name, Shimon. I think he said Simon, didn't he? Yeah. Okay. Well, because the Greeks just couldn't pronounce that sh sound. Well, anyway, the uh, uh, Aramaic name Cephas gets used here. Now, what's so important about that little observation? I get excited about little details, as you can tell. But you know what that tells you? It tells you that Paul has been very, very careful to preserve what he's been given. He is taking pains to to send it down the transmission track, if you will, the same way he got it. Now verse 6 brings up an incident that's not paralleled by the Gospels. It says that it appeared to 500 people. And this, in my mind, adds to the weight of Paul's testimony. Because what it shows you is that the that the writers of the New Testament, the people who are copying the New Testament, aren't just frantically trying to chop up all the stuff that doesn't uh, that not seem to make sense all at once. They aren't trying to collude on on making up stories. In other words, they're happy with little bits of it sticking out of the box because, well, it's true. See, so Paul is really demonstrating he's not making this up. He's not making up details. And it's a key piece of evidence as well to his argument. He says, okay, well, hang on just a second. Let me, let me just take your word on this. You say Jesus didn't rise from the dead because there's no such thing as resurrection, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, uh okay, so you don't want to believe me on this. Yeah, no, Paul, you're you know, you're little, you've got bal- you're balding, you you're not a very good speaker. Yeah, I'm not gonna to listen to you. So Paul says, Oh, well, don't listen to me. Yeah, you know, there's over 500 people to whom Jesus appeared, and a lot of those people are still alive. Go talk to them if you don't believe me. Notice how Paul doesn't say, well, believe me, because I'm, after all, the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, God appeared to me in a dream. You've got to believe what I say. No, he says, go talk to the witnesses if you don't believe me. Now, Verse 7 uh, mentions James. And there are lots of people who wear that name James or Jacob. And, and this guy is the, is the one who is Jesus' brother. You notice that he says in verse 5, He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to James. So this James is not part of the twelve. This is James, Jesus' brother, the guy who wrote uh, the epistle by that name. But rounding out the list of witnesses to whom Jesus appeared, Paul brings up the rear in his usual humble fashion. See, the list starts with Peter and it ends with Paul. I think he's done that. He he's, he's said it this way to emphasize the fact that both Peter and Paul need the grace of God. Peter, because he denied the Lord... And Paul, because he persecuted the church, they're both in the same boat, just like the rest of us, right? <laughs> but verses 5 through 8 show you how much weight Christians give to evidence from testimony. It's not, well, you know, there was, this, there was this miracle. Oh yeah, what happened? Well, we don't know, but it was a miracle. Oh, Who can you talk to about it? Well, gee, I don't know, there was only one of us. Things don't work that way. The Bible never asks you to believe something that's uncorroborated. So there's always witnesses. God always corroborates His story with witnesses. L- just to to name a few passages that uh, that we could go to on these, uh, we won't turn to them all. But just let's listen as I as I read these. For instance. Uh, Luke 24, 48, Jesus says to His disciples, You are witnesses of these things. John, the author of the Gospel, says about John the Baptist, He came as a witness, John 1, 7, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to bear witness about the light. Now, John the Baptist himself says, John 1:34. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus says to his opponents John five thirty one uh, through thirty three, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Elsewhere in, say, John 6 and other places, Jesus says, well, don't believe just what I'm saying. Look at what I'm doing. If you want to know, look at what I'm doing. And then Jesus says to the disciples, Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And Peter says this in his speech on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Acts 5.32. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Well, we could go on and on with lists of passages that emphasize how Christians uh, value eyewitness testimony. We don't just uncritically accept what people tell us. It has to be tested against the truth. And so God never asks you for blind faith. He always gives you some reason to believe. Jesus died for our sins according to God's plan and God raised him from the dead as a vindication of what he had done for us. The very core doctrines of what it means to be a Christian were committed to writing within the lifetimes of those who knew Jesus personally. These were the very people to whom Jesus had entrusted his message. Now those 500 witnesses are all gone. But now we have the Bible as a witness. We now have the Gospels. And we can read what those people knew from first-hand experience. You can trust the New Testament because it accurately records what Jesus said and did. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are eternally grateful to you for the fact that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You knew what you were doing and you revealed it beforehand. You saw it come to pass. And you recorded it for us in a way that is trustworthy beyond any critic's doubts We ask, Father, that you would strengthen us by uh, this word, this passage in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, to be confident as we present the truth of the gospel to other people, the people around us, the people who have questions, and we can know for sure that we can trust what we have in the Bible. And we thank you for all of this in the matchless and wonderful name of Jesus our Lord, amen.